You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Gangland goes to war. Is there a cyber world war in progress? Ukraine thinks so. A new North Korean ransomware operation is described. Media organizations remain attractive targets for state actors. Betsy Carmelite from Booz Allen Hamilton on planning for post-quantum cryptography. Our special guest is CISA director Jen Easterly. And NSA releases guidance on characterizing threats and risks to microelectronics. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 15th, 2022. The most notorious early adherent to the Russian cause among the cyber gangs was the now possibly defunct, dispersed, and rebranded Conti, which on February 25th announced its full support of the Russian government and promised to use all the resources at its disposal against enemy infrastructure. This prompted a wave of doxing in which disaffected and possibly foreign Conti collaborators released the gang's internal chatter through their ContiLeaks account. Sijax, which was following developments, notes... This leak caused significant unrest within the group, with the Conti Leaks account itself tweeting, We know everything about you, Conti. Go to panic. You can't even trust your GF. We against you. Conti itself did a bit of backpedaling for damage control, backing down from its promise of unconditional cyber war to a more measured claim that it would only target Western warmongers, but the reputational damage had been done and may have contributed to the gang's subsequent hibernation. On March 4th, shortly after Conti's ill-advised patriotic screed, researchers at Sijax noticed another leak-and-dump operation targeting a different Russian gang, TrickBot. The leakers tweeted under the name TrickLeaks, and the main point of their doxing was to expose and close connection between TrickBot's criminal operators and Russia's FSB security service. TrickLeaks announced itself to the world with the tweet, We have evidence of the FSB's cooperation with members of the TrickBot criminal group, Wizard Spider, Maze, Conti, Dayavol, and Ryuk. The close collaboration between Gangland and the Russian security service isn't surprising, but Sijax thinks the degree of organization and interconnection among apparently disparate criminal groups is useful news that will help organizations defend themselves against organized cybercrime in the future. Gangland seems to have more mutual dependencies than had been generally appreciated. 
Wondering if we're in a cyber world war seems a bit overheated, and a cyber war isn't, after all, as damaging as a full kinetic war, even when cyber attacks have kinetic effects. But in terms of scope, the name doesn't seem too far off. For example, Canada's communications security establishment yesterday warned that the current Russian cyber threat is not to be underestimated. The National Post quotes a CSE report as saying, The scope and severity of cyber operations related to the Russian invasion of Ukraine has almost certainly been more sophisticated and widespread than has been reported in open sources. The most immediate threat is heightened cyber espionage, but attacks against critical infrastructure are also held to be a real possibility. Canada has been an early, consistent, and strong supporter of Ukraine during the present war. Canada is also home to a large Ukrainian diaspora. Politico has a long interview with Yuri Shichiel, who directs Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, the SSSCIP, which Politico describes as roughly equivalent in terms of its responsibilities to the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The article aims to describe what it characterizes as a generally successful Ukrainian defensive effort in cyberspace and summarizes the Ukrainian view of how to fight Russia in cyberspace. First of all, isolate it and deny it access to resources and technology. Tracing the history of the cyber phases of the hybrid war, Shichial says that Russia's cyber campaign preceded the physical invasion by more than a month. He says, for Ukrainians, the first cyber world war started on January 14, 2022, when there were attacks launched at the websites owned by state authorities. Twenty websites were defaced, and more than 90 information systems belonging to those government authorities were damaged. Attacks against Viasat ground terminals disabled the satellite-borne internet provider a matter of hours before the invasion itself. Shichial thinks the Russian cyber campaign has been well-resourced, but also that it's used familiar tools. He says, in terms of their technical capabilities, so far the attackers have been using modified viruses and software that we've been exposed to before, like the Indestroyer 2 virus, when they targeted and damaged our energy station here. It's nothing more than a modification of the virus they developed back in 2017. We all have to be aware that those enemy hackers are very well sponsored and have access to unlimited finances, especially when they want to take something off the shelf and modify it and update it. He emphasized the importance of denying Russia access to the civilized world's security companies and IT infrastructure and in restricting Russia's participation in international IT organizations like the International Telecommunications Union. He had some interesting, if guarded, disclosures about the cooperation Ukraine is receiving from NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, which he described as constant synergy, and explained that, like in further supply of heavy weapons and other forms of weaponry, the same is true for cybersecurity— we expect that level of assistance of those supplies will only increase because only in this manner can we together ensure our joint victory against our common enemy. Above all, Shichial warns against any relaxation of vigilance. He expects the war to continue and that operational pauses happen in cyberspace much as they do in physical space. 
So, just because Fancy Bear hasn't turned the lights off in Kiev or London or Toronto or New York, or not yet at least, don't get cocky, kid. Microsoft describes an emerging North Korea ransomware operation it tracks as Dev0530 that's using a relatively new strain of ransomware called Holy Ghost. The blasphemous name, Microsoft points out, is the Hood's own choice, not Redmond's. Dev0530, a provisional designation assigned until more is known about the group, is noteworthy in that it appears to be entirely financially motivated and in that selects small and mid-sized businesses as its target. Mystic, the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center, assesses that DEV0530 has connections with another North Korean-based group tracked as Plutonium, also known as Dark Soul or Andarial. While the use of Holy Ghost ransomware in campaigns is unique to DEV0530, Mystic has observed communications between the two groups, as well as DEV0530 using tools created exclusively by Plutonium. The gang's communications with its victims and others cop an altruistic and humanitarian line, claiming to be helping its victims improve their security posture, as if they were white-hat pen testers, and to be contributing to an egalitarian leveling of rich and poor to the advantage of the poor, as if they were Robin Hood. The group is asking for between 1.2 and 5 Bitcoin in ransom, roughly $25,000 to $104,000 at current conversion rates. But so far, Microsoft says their wallet seems to have remained empty, even though DEV0530 has shown a willingness to negotiate their asking price. Pyongyang has long used cybercrime as a source of income to redress the financial pressures it labors under due to the decades of international sanctions that have crippled the DPRK's economy, It's even more difficult to separate North Korean intelligence and security services from criminal activity than it is to tell the Russian privateers apart from the Russian organs. But this latest campaign is sufficiently ambiguous to suggest that it might be the work of a gang that's obtained access to some state actors' tools, or even the work of state actors who are moonlighting for personal gain. North Korean state actors have usually cast a broader net This campaign seems more tightly focused in its target selection. The activity remains under study, but in the meantime, Microsoft has offered indicators of compromise and some advice for defenders. Late yesterday, Proofpoint released a study of recent activity by state actors directed against media organizations. The researchers find that China, North Korea, Turkey, and Iran have been particularly active in prospecting media organizations. They say, Proofpoint researchers have observed APT actors since early 2021 regularly targeting and posing as journalists and media organizations to advance their state-aligned collection requirements and initiatives. Journalists' social media accounts have been of particular interest to the threat groups. And finally, right out of Fort Meade, the U.S. National Security Agency has released new guidance on the classification of threats and risks to the microelectronics used by the U.S. Department of Defense. The document, DOD Microelectronics, Levels of Assurance, Definitions, and Applications, outlines the process for determining levels of hardware assurance for systems and custom microelectronic components, which include application-specific integrated circuits, 
field programmable gate arrays and other devices containing reprogrammable digital logic. Levels of assurance come down to three basic elements, NSA explains, and those are consequence, threat, and mitigation. The guidance addresses all three and seeks to do so in a rigorous fashion. The document will be of immediate interest to providers and users of microelectronics and of more general interest to anyone concerned with risk management. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Jen Easterly is director of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, a job for which she was sworn in a year ago. In her time as CISA director, she's led a team focused on the cybersecurity of the nation, guiding the mission of protecting both the public and private sectors. I spoke with Director Easterly earlier this week. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you, Dave, and I just have to say thanks because you all reached out to us to actually put our alerts on CyberWire, and we are huge fans of the CyberWire. And it's terrific to actually have that as an additional platform for people to get our alerts. So we try and get them out as as often as and in various different ways and various different platforms, but fantastic to be part of the CyberWire family. And you guys reached out, and so I really appreciate it. Well, we're very excited about the collaboration as well and, and uh, just, you know, hoping it continues to lead to more good things. 
you know, uh, there's been a commentary about uh, using the the phrase shields up with the uh, initiative. And um, I have to say that as someone who uh, grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation, it resonates with me and I get it. Um, not, not everyone has been a big fan of that. What's been the, the, uh, the feedback so far with shields up? Um, not everyone's been a big fan because they don't like Star Trek or they don't like shields up. Well, I think there's a little bit of the Star Trek thing, but I think maybe what people take issue is more that it's kind of a binary thing. They're either up or down. And the natural question is, will they ever be down? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, we started this a little bit was my kind of obsession with with Star Trek, but we started this as a way to signal a sense of urgency to our stakeholders, from our critical infrastructure owners and operators, to our partners at the state and local level, uh, that this was a different situation. And we wanted to be able to provide a message that could be received and absorbed by all of our stakeholders, you know, to include the American people, but business owners, large and small, chief executive officers, the technical community. And we wanted a pretty simple way of doing it. And that was this sort of shields up. I think, you know, to get to your question, and I've been interrogated on this before by by others, at the end of the day, I think we all realize that shields up has to be the new normal. What we've been focused on over the past couple of years, certainly motivated by the attacks that we've seen from nation states and cyber criminals and certainly the scourge of ransomware over the past couple of years, is the need to collectively raise our game in cyber and to recognize that this is not a government thing. This is not an industry thing. This is not uh, an individual thing. It's in we're all in this together and we all have responsibility to implement the basics of cybersecurity controls, cyber hygiene for the good of the nation. And so, you know, Chris Inglis and I wrote an op-ed on this. Essentially, Shields Up is the new normal. So the question is, how do we actually distinguish from being at our highest level of urgency to a Shields Up, which is Yes, we can let our incident responders and our SOC personnel take vacation once in a while. Because what we don't want to have is vigilance fatigue. And as head of America's Cyber Defense Agency, Dave, I'm particularly worried about that. I want to make sure that my great network defenders, my threat hunters, my vulnerability management folks, my incident responders are not burning out. And so ultimately, I think we need a way to calibrate what the threat is, whether it's at a significantly high level based on what we're seeing from the intelligence community, our industry partners, or is it a level of what I would call guarded, which is we always need to be at some level of alert for uh, cyber threats, but we don't need to be at our highest level of alert. And so that's what we are looking to create, essentially a national cyber alert system And this is, uh, the thinking on this, Dave, was very informed by my time in the financial services sector where the FSISAC, the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center, had a mechanism to say, okay, we are at this level, we are going to move to this level, these are the things you should be doing at this level, and then we're not going to stay there forever, we're actually going to come together and decide, do we stay, do we go up one, do we move down one, and so... 
we'll never be at, you know, level green. Well, I think we always as a nation need to be guarded, but then we need to calibrate. When do we move to elevated? When do we move to critical? And we need a disciplined and rigorous way to say, this is why we're moving and signal to the American people and to critical infrastructure owners and operators, this is what it means. And this, these are the actions that you should be taking. And I think part of that is clarity of communications that technical folks have not always been awesome at. And Mm -hmm. it's one reason why we are working so hard to make sure that we are communicating with clarity and with a way that distinguishes the various audiences that we need to communicate to, whether it's the business community, the technical community, the, the individual And so we're really putting a lot of effort in uh, communications and the cyber threat advisory system will be a piece of that that I think will be value added. Could you give us some insights uh, as to what goes on behind the scenes at CISA in terms of collaborating with the various other government agencies to help spread the word and get this information out to the public? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things, Dave, that motivated me to come back from the private sector to government was the impression I had as uh, a member of critical infrastructure, owner and operator doing cybersecurity within Morgan Stanley, was the government was just not as coherent as it should be, could be, to the private sector in the partnership that needs to be forged to be able to protect and defend critical infrastructure that Americans rely on every hour of every day. And I had seen, you know, different products coming from different parts of the government and sometimes sending a slightly different signal. And one of the things that we are really trying to work hard on is, and hopefully you've seen this in the alerts that you all publish uh, on your platform, is almost all of our advisories now, Dave, are joint. We do them with FBI, we do them with NSA, sometimes we'll do them with the sector risk management agency like Energy or Treasury if it's specific to those sectors. We'll often do it with our international partners, which is terrific because it sends that common signal that here is the guidance that we're putting out. It's informed by the full federal cyber ecosystem and some by the international cyber ecosystem. And so that is one of the real behind the scenes pushes that we've been very focused on uh, over the past year is much greater coherence. The other thing that we're really focused on is making sure, and this is also informed by my time in the private sector, that everything we put out is timely, is relevant, is actionable. When you're a network defender, whether it's at the state or local level, whether it's in a small business, a large business, you want the information that you get to be something that you can actually do something with to help secure your network. And so we are very focused on making sure that everything we put out is of value and is timely. And one of the things that I would say to your audience is please continue to give us feedback. We are the newest agency in the federal government. We are a startup agency. Uh, We are evolving. And my general view in life is we need to treat feedback as a gift and approach everything we do with a sense of gratitude and a sense of humility. We need to realize that we are part of a community, which is awesome. And I'm sure you you recognize this, right, Dave? I mean, the Mm. cybersecurity community is in many ways really magical. 
um, incredibly focused, dedicated, imaginative, uh, creative people who, whether they work in the government or whether they work in industry, are very mission focused and like to solve hard problems. So we need to approach all of this as a community. So we're looking to add value. We are looking to collaborate with all of our partners. But behind the scenes, we're very focused on being coherent and being uh, value added. So please continue to give us feedback on these advisories because we want to make them useful to the community. There is much more to my conversation with CISA director Jen Easterly. We'll be sharing the full interview as a special edition in your CyberWire podcast feed, and you can also find it on our website, thecyberwire.com. Our thanks to Director Easterly for spending the time with us. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Betsy Carmelite. She is a principal at Booz Allen Hamilton, and she is the Federal Attack Surface Reduction Lead. Betsy, it's always great to have you back. I want to touch base with you today about where we stand when it comes to post-quantum cryptography. Sure, Dave. Um, so I think where we where I want to start around this is really to touch on why we started looking at this, this concept Obviously, quantum technologies are going to offer fundamentally fundamentally new ways to obtain, distribute, and process information. But Log4j and that cyber incident signaled a growing need for post-quantum cryptography. And in this case, many organizations were using Log4j and were victim to that visibility struggle. It was, it was hard to scan and hard to scan for and hard to find. And so with complex systems, it's hard to have the visibility of your software inventory. If you translate that undertaking to discovering every type of cryptography being used by every business unit and third party and organizations, it's overwhelming. However, it's it's vital to avoid being vulnerable to future attacks because although quantum computers' current abilities are more demonstrative than immediately useful, We see their trajectory suggesting that in the coming decades, quantum computers will likely revolutionize numerous industries from pharmaceuticals to material science and eventually undermine all popular current public key encryption methods. Hmm. So organizations are going to need to react not, not just to quantum threats, but whatever comes next. And there's this agility that's going to be needed. It's going to be key such as, for example, the ability to modify algorithms quickly to counter a quantum-based attack um, or adopt new encryption methods. So where do we stand when it comes to this sort of preparation? Are we in a place where people can put this stuff into motion? I, th- I think where we've come at it is looking at how the adversary and what adversaries are really emerging um, to understand the threat, first and foremost. Um, and so which major players are out there in quantum computing? And there are definite things that that can be put in place, but really I wanted to touch on some of the implications from a national security standpoint and that threat. Mm-hmm. We did uh, release a report called Chinese Threats in the Quantum Era. And 
Chinese threat groups will likely soon be able to collect encrypted data with long-term utility, expecting uh, eventually to decrypt it with quantum computers. So um, one of the reasons why we embarked on, on this report was we wanted to know how and when Chinese cyber threats might be shaped by this change to help our clients and organizations manage their, their changing risk profile. And so what are your recommendations there? We identified two main areas of data confidentiality threats related to this adversary. First, there will likely be an increase over this decade in the theft of data that can be used for quantum simulators. And organizations with this sort of data that attackers seek tend to be involved in research and development related work such as pharmaceuticals, biology, chemistry, material science. And many of these organizations in the government, commercial and academic sectors are already using this sort of data for simulation using classical computers. So we are looking at likely targets aligning with Chinese economic and national security priorities. Second, there will be likely increased theft or interception of encrypted data with long-term intelligence value. And although stolen data tends to have a limited shelf life, some may be useful for a state adversary for more than a decade in the future. And examples include business strategies, trade secrets, biometric identification markers, social security numbers, uh, weapons designs, and the identities of human intelligence officers and assets. So if an organization holds that data, that data that must be kept secret for more than 10 years, the process of securing it really must start now. And there are a few things now that we've identified for organizations that they can do to ensure their infrastructure and data are protected. Hmm. Uh, While quantum may not pose a direct threat to most organizations for at least a decade, developing and deploying certain critical mitigations like post-quantum encryption will also likely take at least a decade. And so there there are some things to do to manage strategic risk around cyber threats. It's important to conduct threat modeling to assess changes to organizational risk, develop an organizational strategy for deploying post-quantum encryption. That's that agility I referenced. Um, And then really understand and educate on quantum Computing Changes in quantum computers will likely appear dramatically rather than as some smooth roll or evolution. And so that creates a substantial exposure to, as we say, strategic surprise as a major source of risk and a failure to understand and monitor the growing significance of quantum computing. Um, maybe right now, because it seems so far off in the future, really could result in missed opportunities to make necessary proactive risk decisions. How heavy a lift is it at this this moment if I wanted to, you know, switch over to using encryption that was post-quantum ready, uh, what am I in for? Well, I think the first step in, in that heavy lift is taking stock of, for an organization to take stock of their crypto inventory, really discovering where you have instances of certain algorithms or certain types of cryptography, um, understanding you know, how, how strong or not and, and vulnerabilities within that cryptography. So that's, that's really the first step and that's, that's a, a lot of work. Um, so that's, that's what we're really recommending 
um, if organizations are looking to take a, a first glance at how they can get ready for this next decade. All right. Well, Betsy Carmelite, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday, my conversation with Chad Seaman. He's team lead with Akamai's Security Incident and Response Team. We're talking about their research about a record-breaking DDoS attack amplification in the wild. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.